Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. And welcome to another episode of Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli with RestaurantOwner.com. I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth, the magazine of RestaurantOwner.com. And today we've got a very, very exciting conversation to provide for you, Alex Smith, CEO of the well-known Atlas Restaurant Group, Maryland-based, multiple concepts, is willing to take some time out of his schedule and share his story. So Alex, thank you so much and welcome to Corner Booth. Thanks, Chris and Barry. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We like to kick these things off typically to by asking our guests, you know, how they got into the business, their path. You've achieved a lot in a very short time, at least based on your age. So I'm very interested, you know, what got you down this path and then how you accelerated it so quickly to have this multi, this very large multi-unit successful enterprise. Yes. I guess I'll just start from the beginning. I started college, my first business. Right when I graduated, actually, and I was doing the work beforehand was a Haagen-Dazs franchise. And that's how I got in the business with was was with a franchise unit. And it was a great way for me to get in the business and learn how to run my own small business. Ice cream is super manageable, uh, very easy from a culinary standpoint. There's not really much to do. Take it out of the freezer and scoop. But I learned a lot just running my own small business, doing payroll, learning how to run a, a small shop. And to this day, I still own it. So uh, you could say that was my start into the business. And you still own it. I love that. So you yeah. started in college? So I started the process in college. I opened, I graduated May of 2007. And by July of 2007, my ice cream store was open. So, you know, I got, I really got to work right away. And my first year and a half after school, I was scooping ice cream and making milkshakes and working the store open to close and just learning how to run my own small business. But now I've had the business since July of 2007. So uh, how many years is that now? It'd be 16 years open and operating, right? That would be this this July. It's, uh, it's been a good run there and the store does continues to climb and does very well. And, you know, I just have sentimental value with that place. So I don't want to let it go. <laughs> so going from ice cream to upscale fine dining on premises and having that many units a year, that you own and you're overseeing, um, how'd you make that? Where'd you, how'd you make that leap in that direction? Yeah, good question. Uh, my next business, uh, you know, in this area which we call Harbor East in Baltimore, which is a highly developed uh, multi-billion-dollar um, development that is a multi-use. So you know, we've got multi-family office, hotel, uh, you know, various retailers. We didn't have any kind of um, strong lunch spot, and so I really wanted to open a uh, an upscale deli uh, diner type concept. and And so my second business was Harbor East Deli, um, and uh, did pizza, sandwiches, uh, salads. Uh, you know, I was cheesesteaks, burgers, that sort of thing, and uh, opened that and worked that for about another year and a half. So my first three years of my business was those two businesses. Harbor East Deli still is around. That, that business, I think I opened in 2009. And so both those businesses are still in Harbor East. They're thriving. And uh, that was my first foray into actual food. Mm-hmm. And I've got Greek heritage. My grandfather 
was Greek. And so I, I really wanted to open a fine dining Greek restaurant and all Baltimore really had at that time. Um, and, and still now was, um, you know, what you would think of as a souvlaki or hero shop and it didn't have anything upscale. And I'd been to New York and I'd been to Athens. And so I had seen, uh, Milos and Kalari and all these upscale Greek, uh, restaurants, Estetorios is what they call them. And so I wanted to open up a upscale Greek restaurant. And so I did the research. I hired really great people. Uh, I built the concept. I went and visited, you know, 30, 40 places, looked at the menu items, looked at the product and where it was coming from and uh, what made it special. Um, and I, and I just had an understanding of that. And I went and hired a great design team and built Uzo Bay, which is my first fine dining restaurant, which opened in Harbor East in 2012. Uh, we opened August in 2012. Yeah. That's how I get into the fine dining business and just learn from there. Um, hired really great people and learn from there and then continued to build a company. That was, that was our first foray into fine dining. And then we just didn't slow down after that. You mentioned, you know, people a couple of times, and I know that that's one of the things that I hear throughout the industry is that uh, Atlas Restaurant Group is obviously a perfect example of what we might call a people-first, positive work environment, a culture that attracts and seems to be able to retain its people. Um, we hear so much now from companies large and small about how hard it is in the marketplace. Maybe we could talk a little bit about way back then when you were first starting, what was yeah. your commitment to people? How has it grown? What are all the things that you do to attract and, and keep your people? Yeah. So one thing for sure, back then, uh, I never ran the business as a dictatorship. I think a lot of mom and pop operators, um, they really run it as, uh, you know, as a, you know, I'm in charge and this is what needs to happen. And, um, you know, as a young kid gained into fine dining, I just didn't have that luxury. Um, I hired a bartender who I knew was working in the most popular place in town to do our cocktail list. Um, I hired a wine som from uh, another regional Greek restaurant that uh, really had knowledge of Greek wines. Um, hired an executive chef, um, Ray Eugenio, who came from Roy's. Um, and Roy's back then was not a cookie cutter restaurant. It was a very upscale seafood restaurant. And uh, he was excellent. And he and I did a lot of research on Greek cuisine. But I think we did a great job of assembling people um, to really learn from and grow with. Um, the first general manager... Uh, that we had of Uzo Bay, Brian McCormick, he's now CEO of my company. Uh, and he's partners with in six or seven other businesses with me. So uh, we're, we're an organization that not only grew financially, grew sales-wise, grew concept-wise, but uh, we've grown, we've grown people-wise. And, um, you know, we, we have 1,800 employees right now and uh, 28 concepts. And you just can't grow an organization like ours unless there's a vested interest in growing people within your organization as well. How many people did you say you employ in all your restaurants? We have eighteen hundred employees. Yeah, I think it's a good sized group. Yes. So we we have um, guests who are either hopeful to uh, have multi unit concepts or have multiple units of, of maybe different concepts. Maybe not growing to the size that you have, but certainly um, they dream. What what parts about it get easier with each new? unit or new concept and what parts are just you know almost like starting from scratch each time you you try to open another business yeah great question i mean you know part of it is you know each we do have some repeats in in, in that you know we we have 
three lock bars right now. We have two chop tanks. We have two is obey, but for the two is a base, but for the most part, all of our concepts are different. And I think the most challenging part is, is that with each new concept, the owner really needs to spend time on the ground to figure out what the identity of the restaurant is um, and really figure out what, what the culture is going to be from a lighting standpoint, from an entertainment standpoint, from a food standpoint. Um, what is that place going to look and feel like? And how is it going to differentiate if it's close to your other brands from your other brands in the marketplace to really have its own identity? Um, I think that's the challenge of, of a restaurant like that. Um, the benefits of a restaurant like that are is buying power. Um, you know, when you have 28 restaurants, um, I'm using the same filet at every single one of my restaurants. We use a uh, prime filet um, and, and, and a high choice filet in some of our concepts, but uh, it's all meat by Lens out of Chicago. Um, you know, my Bronzino is coming from Samuels and Sons out of Philadelphia Seaport. It's the same Bronzino we use uh, at all of our restaurants. It's, it's just prepared differently. Um, so when you're buying proteins uh, and you're, 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 you're to our scale, uh, there are certainly advantages into buying power and working with uh, distributors. Um, but you know, the, the disadvantage is, is that it's, it's each, each restaurant really needs to have its own feel and identity. Um, and you need to make that special. And it's about how you go about making that special. And I have two questions related to what you just said. That was a pretty rich comment. Um, in terms of determining what makes it special in terms of what culture it is, the ambience and all that. Um, do you just say, listen, I'm going to trust my gut. I know what I'm doing. I, I, I think I have a certain knack for this. Or are you, what other kind of information are you sure. looking at to make, you know, to, to, to make sure that you're making the right choice? Yeah. So my, my, my company has grown and, and flourished um, under, under really one uh, principle. And it's, it's a three pillars under this one principle. One is integrity of product. And so we, we absolutely try and find the best product to serve to our guests period. Um, and we charge for it. Uh, but in the fine dining business, um, I would advise anybody out there not to take a product, um, and charge for it and, or, uh, present it in a way where it's something that it's not. So if, if, if we put a product out there, it's the best thing I can find. It's, it's, it's upscale, it's quality, it's fresh. Um, people are willing to pay for that. And two is entertainment. Uh, you know, I've found that um, in the restaurant business, it's not good enough just to be great at food and service anymore. It has to be something beyond that. Um, and we've done a great job of cultivating entertainment in all of our brands, whether it's uh, live piano at Oregon Grill at Tagliata, it could be jazz, it could be live music, it could be uh, at Monarch, we have, um, you know, performers, uh, stage performers and things of that nature. But we, we've really done a great job integrating entertainment into our restaurants. Uh, our entertainment budget last year was nearly $3 million, and we worked with hundreds of local artists in our markets. Um, and I advise anybody that's getting into our business to understand that it's evolving past just serving good, good food and, 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 and have good service. And the third is hospitality. I mean, who is out there on your floor uh, or in your back of house, but who's out there regularly building business and um, really engaging with customers on a personal level to, uh, to build that connection? And if you don't have people on the floor doing that in your local market, uh, then you're going to have a, a problem down the road. Uh, every night, our team is going out there. We're engaging with guests. Uh, we're learning more about our guests. Um, and we're really trying to go above and beyond from a hospitality standpoint. I think that if any restaurant, and I don't care who you are, does those three things, puts out a great product, 
provides some level of entertainment and engages with your guests on a personable level, no matter where you are in the country, you'll be successful. Uh, but you have to have an absolute commitment to do those things. The other question I have, um, based on your earlier comment, and thank you for that um, good explanation, is you were talking about your specific vendors and, you know, uh, modern business theory, stakeholder theory is that, you know, you have to take care of all your stakeholders, particularly your vendors. And if you take care of your vendors, you have a good relationship with them, they're going to look out for you. They're going to look for ways to help you make your business better. Um, do you? Ex- it sounds like you have good relationship with your vendors and you're a loyal customer. Um, do you think that gives you any advantage in terms of them thinking, hey, Alex, I, I, I have some ideas here on how you can maybe save some money, get a better product, how we can help you be better? Yeah, I mean, look, we, were, we work with great people um, and I'm really happy with the people we work with. We, on an annualized basis, always always look around and see what's going on in the marketplace and check our prices and our procurement director, uh, Teresa, she's not only, she does an excellent job with that. Um, but I will tell you that I think the the thing, the relationship that we have with our vendors is from day one, we've never gone on credit terms. And for a big company, that's very rare, but mm-hmm. we pay everything COD. And uh, I could tell you that when the pandemic hit and we shut down, uh, whatever we owed was no more than seven to 10 days. We paid all of our bills and we were done. And I think, uh, you know, vendors are willing to go above and beyond for their customer base, but I have some friends out there in this industry that are 60, 90 day credit terms. And I would just tell you all that, you know, they have bills to pay to, they have employees to pay to, and the tighter you can keep it, I think the better the relationship will be. Um, I do really think that uh, we have great relationships with our vendors, but it starts with just basic business. Uh, you guys bill me, I send a check and we move on to the next, uh, to the next phase of our relationship. Um, I'm really... I really commend you for doing that. And I think to some of our listeners, that kind of sounds like a surprise because they're looking to get bigger. And as they get bigger, they normally do just the opposite. They're yeah. doing 30 day terms or they want to negotiate to go from 30 to 60 day terms using their borrower power to do that. But but I, I would like everyone to just make a note of what they just heard, because I know I've had tremendous success with going back to purveyors Um and not only does it build that bond and you know they're going to take care of you, they appreciate you getting that check every week. Uh, but it's also a negotiating factor for price. Yes. Um, if they're getting their money that quick, that quickly, uh, sometimes it's a whole lot easier for them to include you in on more of the national contracts, cut a bigger rebate or lower their per pound price. It's harder for them to do that if they know that they got to wait 30 or 45 days for the money. So Exactly. You're winning both ways. Good for you. No question. And and the other thing is, is that if you hit a downturn in the economy and things do slow down, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about it. So I, look, I would encourage any uh, operator out there when you do catch up and you are making money, uh, pay those, you know, 30, 16 day. And I've heard of 90 to uh, credit terms down and, and get it to a couple of weeks and, and try and establish a better relationship with your vendor. Mm-hmm. You are, um, an example because of your success and quick success, you know, in 10 to 15 year type of growth plan for many small companies starting out. And so my question for you is when you felt like you had a good process uh, to go from developing idea, building team, opening a store, uh, that concept then can become a growth vehicle, creating another concept. Did you have a pattern to follow, an established mentor or um, particular yeah. Something out there that you learn from? Unfortunately, uh, you know, things like the 
the the COD stuff I learned from my grandfather. He's an old school guy, um, and that's just the way he did business. So uh, I've got him to credit for that. But I would tell you that, you know, I've learned from the people around me. The restaurant business is a is a is a people business, and there's experts in their fields. Uh, whether it's procurement, uh, whether it's being an exec chef. And then, as you know, there's a couple different types of executive chefs. There's executive chefs that know how to manage payroll, that know how to manage a business. There's executive chefs that are creative R&D type chefs. And and I think that our strength at Atlas has been um, just like building a team, whether it's a soccer team or a baseball team or whatever it is. You have great people in, in, in all different sorts of positions. Um, and the best thing to do is have an open forum, listen to these people that are experts in their position, and then put the best team on the field to play. And so I would tell you that when expanding your business, there's no right answer. Um, there's there's no correct way to do things. Uh, the only way to do things is surround yourself with the greatest people um, and, and hear what they have to say and then make a calculated decision based on what you're hearing. Uh, to move the business in the right direction. Uh, that's that's how we've grown so fast. Well, and for some that maybe aren't as familiar, uh, could you, let's go back to continue the story. You've already talked about your first couple of concepts, um, but now um, how did you choose to develop the additional concepts and choose the markets that you decided to move into? Yeah. So, uh after Uzo Bay, um, you know, I had an opportunity and the opportunity was to get involved over at the Four Seasons Hotel. Four Seasons had Michael Mina as an operator at that time. Um, he was, uh, Michael Mina is obviously a very talented chef, but not a very good uh, operator in a market that is outside of his wheelhouse. And, um, you know, he was a guy that would come to Baltimore once a year and visit. And, uh, and, and, and that's great. But unfortunately, Baltimore is a very locally driven market. Um, and it's a market that if you're not uh, entrenched in, in the local community, um, being a celebrity chef or a Michelin star winner is not going to get you many points. Um, and so his his restaurants in the Four Seasons were floundering. Um, he he vacated. We ended up uh, leasing his space in the Four Seasons. Um, and um, what what he had is a I think it was a six or seven million dollar business. We now have is a thirty five million dollar business in the same hotel. Um, and the reason is, is because um, we we are a local first business. Uh, we built the business around the local clientele and then supplemented that with the hotel business. Um, whereas when he was there, he focused on the hotel business and supplemented with the local business. And it's a it's a great lesson for any uh, restaurateur to, that goes into any kind of market to know that you have to have the locals first. You have to have the locals first. Um, I don't care where you are. If you're in a neighborhood, go for the neighborhood people first. Uh, don't worry on the about the tourists coming in. That that'll always be there. But uh, you got to really build your business around local. Um, and so that was our big break uh, that got us on a national stage. Um, you know, we've got four restaurants now in the Four Seasons. It's uh, the number three performing hotel in the country as far as uh, room nights and revenue. Um, and then from there, um, we 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 got involved with a bunch of second generation locations, um, locations around the area where. We saw potential in the, in the units. There was always a there was already a ton of capital infrastructure uh, that was invested in these units, um, and we saw an opportunity to come in and invest dollars. and uh, And and being that we had really taken off as a group, uh, turn these properties around and make them more profitable. Um, so that's that's that was our Baltimore story, and we continued to do that and get involved in some historic projects. Uh, we did a couple of strategic acquisitions. Um, and you know now in Maryland, I think we're up to twenty three 
uh, restaurants open and operating between Annapolis, Baltimore, Baltimore County. Um, and so um, why, why go to Florida and Texas? Well, we wanted to expand outside of market and um, we, we knew that, you know, we're, we're a group on scale and scope with star as far as concepts, uh, what we're spending per, 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 per square foot to build out um, kind of our company revenue. Uh, we're, 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 we're approaching where Steven is. And I looked at Steven who I greatly admire and I'm like, well, you know, he, he pretty much has New York, Miami and Philly covered. Um, and so I was thinking to myself, well, where are we going to go? Well, you know, Chicago, you got Let Us Entertain You and you got Boca Restaurant Group, two great groups. Um, I, my heart was not set on the West Coast just because I'm very family oriented and I didn't really feel like flying across the country. So I thought, OK, where can we go uh, that is going to be an emerging market with discretionary income in pro-business states where there's not a lot of competition? Um, so I started doing research in Texas um, and fell in love with the city of Houston. And uh, we're also looking in Dallas now. Um, and figured, wow, you know, Texas has got some great steakhouses, but not a whole lot of great seafood. And so I figured, okay, well, let's open up a couple places in, in Texas. And we've just done great there. Um, and um, we're doing now the same in Florida. We're in Boca Raton and we're looking in other areas of Florida right now. So we feel like uh, those are two great states for us to multiply in. Um, but I guess you could say our overall growth strategy out of market has been stay out of the stay out of the really highly competitive markets where there's a lot of restaurants and focus in on uh, kind of emerging emerging secondary markets. And when I say secondary markets, I mean secondary restaurant markets. Obviously, Houston's a I think it's number three MSA, but um, focus on secondary restaurant markets where there's a lot of up and coming uh, restaurants and restaurant tours. Not something that's necessarily established already. Any other geographic areas that you have your eye on, or you want to keep your cards closer? No, I'll tell you, we're we're looking in we're looking in uh, Charlotte, we're looking in Nashville, uh, we're looking. In, Those have been um, the first two I would have thought of. I thought you know, Carolinas, yeah. Tennessee is where you got to go, and yeah, going. and yeah. Florida, like West Palm, uh, Tampa Bay. Um, we're looking in uh, Dallas and San Antonio and Texas, and frankly, like we don't need to go anywhere else. I mean, between Dallas, San Antonio, West Palm, Tampa. Um, you know, Charlotte, Nashville, uh, we can, we can, we can, you know, obviously DC, we can reach out and touch DC, Arlington, uh, you know, Loudoun County area. Um, you know, so that's, those are all areas that we will expand into over the next 10 years. Um, and, and, and take a look at. Do you have any, um, I don't say mentors because think of the right word. Are there other, uh, uh, companies, other people in the industry who you particularly admire, who you try to draw from their success. You, try, you talked about Let Us Entertain You, and frankly, your model reminds me of Let Us Entertain You. Um, yeah. Let's you know, let's keep growing. Let's get the let's get a Midas touch. Let's get a philosophy, and let's just keep going and going and going. And now they're into consulting and everything else. Um, uh, I hope that question is clear. No, it is. And, and, and so, you know, I, I absolutely admire what they've built there. Um, and we sent our, some of our guys out there, they have an exchange type program and we sent some of our team out there just to take a look at some of the things that they're doing. Um, but we see ourselves as them in 10 years. I mean, you know, they're a six, $700 million business. Maybe it's not 10 years, it's 15 years, but we're certainly headed in that trajectory. Um, I think Steven Starr has done an incredible job. Um, he's got great concepts. They're very well thought out, very well developed. Um, 
you know, he puts a great product on the table. Um, these are regional multi-concept owners that we see ourselves uh, as. I mean, we're we're in that, you know, these guys are in, I would say, the top 10 or 12, and we're in that 15 to 20 range. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're climbing, uh, trying to get to them, and we will get to them. It's just a matter of time. But um, certainly those are two that, that do a great job. Well, you're, you know, and you're to be complimented because I think you're right. It's it's a people first industry. People study people. You've mentioned a couple of times about building people around you. And that's the first thing. To, and the continuing to learn from the people around you. Um, and then you use examples like you just used. And um, they would probably be saying the same thing. Uh, you, you know, they, they are successful because of the principles you shared. Uh, I had the opportunity years ago to do some work on a couple of concepts with Let Us Entertain You, and their process was wonderful. And um, and although their wording might be a tiny bit different, I would think the uh, principle of three pillars, you know, is, is their book too. There's yeah. there's some established principles, and if our listeners realize that 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 if you can grab the established principles that great people are saying help make them great and follow that lead doing your own thing and putting your own twist on your own thing. Uh, you know, then you, you, you're going to have a much, much better chance of being successful. No, I agree with that a hundred percent. When we, um, when I, our, our magazine interview, I think I was the one who talked to you, Alex, uh, uh, and we would talk about this offline a little bit before we got onto the podcast, but, um, you know, early in the pandemic, when things are really, um, the industry was really being shaken up, you know, I'm talking to you and, and you were, I think in the title it had to do with some being bullish. You, you were un, un, not unfazed, but you were certainly not quaking in your shoes like a lot of people were. And you were moving ahead with their concepts and, and then you, you, you showed some humility and laughing. Well, I'm glad I was right, but I'm more interested in, in what you were thinking in that time. I, you don't sound yeah. like somebody who was reckless. You know, you, th- there was, there was, you had reasons for what I, I'm getting that you had reasons for what you were doing and why you were not um, taking a, a fearful attitude that was so prevalent at, for a lot of operators I talked to at the time. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I just more or less had faith that we were going to come back. Um, I made the best deals. I made the, I look back at my pandemic playbook and I could tell you that I made the best deals I ever made in my life during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I was signing leases in May of 2020. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I signed one for Chop Tank Annapolis. It's our highest grossing unit. I signed one for Marmo, which is our Italian chop house in Houston. Um, and then I was signing leases that were straight percentage rent leases because. Uh, I was negotiating at that time as if nothing was ever going to come back and landlords were begging for us to come. Um, and so we make, we made great TI deals and um, you know, we made great deals. Um, and then we did a strategic acquisition. Um, we bought a, bought a local bar called the Admiral's cup. Uh, we bought the Valley Inn and Oregon grill two historic restaurants in Baltimore County. Um, and it was a great time to make acquisitions and sign leases because a lot of people were like, just not in love with the industry anymore. And so mm-hmm. I felt like as a young guy, uh, now's my chance. And, and, and we did a great job um, making some deals during the pandemic. Um, I will tell you that one of the things that allowed us to make great deals is we didn't have any bank debt. Um, we're a company that's expanding with our own cash flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we just had our Atlas Summit the other day at Four Seasons, and I had about 80 salaried people and executive chefs and general managers in from all the the restaurants and our DOs. And they said, well, 
how far are we going to expand? And I was like, that's up to you guys. If we make $10 million, we're going to invest that in growing the company. If we make zero, we're going to, we're going to retrench and figure out what we need to do better to be more profitable and, 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 and reevaluate where we're going. But as long as we continue to make money and we continue to be cash flow positive, uh, I'm going to invest that cash flow and we're going to expand and everybody in this room is going to have an opportunity to grow. So um, I think that the thing that during the pandemic that helped us is, is that we're growing organically. Um, you know, during that 2020, we didn't open up anything. And as soon as we were done a year later, we had leases that we were committed to and we, we started building restaurants. So um, I think growing organically really helped us. We didn't bite off more than we could chew at that time. We don't plan to do that going forward. Uh, I really do think our growth uh, will have to do with uh, the business and cash flow and where the economy is. And we're just going to grow organically. So like a lot of people we've talked to, huh, Chris, where, and, and no, no one who's has as many units as you, but you're basically saying you don't have the future mapped out on graph paper. You're going to approach it um, on its own terms as it unfolds. Correct. And, uh, you know, we have deals we're committed to in 24, um, but it's few and far between and um, 25, 26, even though we're looking in different areas, we've, committed to nothing. We just don't know where, where we're going to be then. Um, but we're just just chugging along, just like a snowball, just making our way down. Sure. And there's those two important things, you know, Barry, that sometimes we um, have to work with readers or our, our members about. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they're looking at the future and it's always compared to somebody else or what they see other restaurants doing, or I want to grow like this, or I, my growth is going to depend on uh, the leaders say in my market segment, and you're talking more about your opportunities are based on operational cash flow. How strong is the company? How much do we have to work with? And then, of course, checking out the economics of the day. It's interesting. I um, it, another thing as well that I, I'll just point out is I was in a car yesterday because we opened a restaurant in D.C. and we were in a ton of traffic. And I was sitting there with our COO and he's like, you know, we're not going to have an opening probably till... October, November of this year. Yeah. And last summer we opened, you know, four restaurants uh, during the summer. And I said, well, great. Guess what? We're going to re-entrench uh, dollars here. We need to make sure this patio is set up and running properly. That property over there, we need to make sure we have it staffed properly for summer. If you're not opening things right away, it's a great opportunity to look back on the businesses you've recreated, you've created already and come up with a strategic plan of how you're going to retrench and make sure that those businesses are more profitable run better, run cleaner. Uh, if there's an FF and E issue, it's fixed and up to date. Um, and so every now and then, you know, if you're an operator, you have two, three, four stores, uh, you just have to sit down with your leadership and say, okay, well, this growth thing is great, but how are we going to continue to sustain what we have and improve that? And so I think that's a, another thing to look at. Something else that um, you said that um, uh, caught me, and this is something, I think, Chris, 20 years ago, you were you were teaching me when we were start working together is that, you know, if you want to have a staff that's really going to be part of your success, you need to treat them as investors, not just simply assets. Here's our financial situation. Here's what we're doing. Here's what the future looks like. I'm not holding anything back. We, you want to grow. This is what we have to do rather than saying, Hey, I got it figured out. Just do your jobs. Now we we operate with 100% transparency. Um, it's out there for everybody to see uh, in our organization, and we're completely transparent about what makes money, what doesn't, what works, what doesn't. 
um, our GMs and our executive chefs have, you know, they, they have a full financial picture of their units. It's the only way to operate when you're in multi-unit operations is for everybody to be engaged uh, on what the finances of the business are. Um, yeah. And and I, I truly believe that. Mm-hmm. And You know, maybe you could spend a couple of minutes on what I know you've done. Uh, and as a company, even before maybe it became sort of in vogue, but the idea of the reinvest community activity, uh, commitment to local farms. And I know that you've got a couple of personnel programs yeah. uh, that I've heard about with tremendous interest. I don't know if I'm saying the name of it, but I think it's Amervest or Amvet or something where you've got specifically pointed out hiring and developing veterans. And I don't know if I said that right, but would you please kind of walk us through what you're doing and how does that benefit you? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of a multi we're uh, let me narrow it down, but we're, we're truly a community partner. We're really trying to engage on many different levels in the community. And what I mean by many different levels, it could be, um, you know, our corporate chef, Chef Aaron was at Carver yesterday, which is a high school. And we're literally hiring kids out of high school to come into our culinary program. And then not just putting them into a program, we're putting them with a mentor and a leader in our organization that can help develop this young person. Um, and we're not doing it in a way that's over overwhelming the, the store. Um, so we're, we're, you know, project serve, which is a, uh, you know, they're taking, um, you know, ex-offenders and finding them jobs in, in the workforce. And, and we, we're hiring people from that and uh, including them in, in, in our process. I mean, so there's many different aspects of, uh, community, community driven, I would say support, support, um, you know, organic farms. Uh, we have our own organic farm, but we're also buying local from whatever we, uh, can't grow on our particular farm. So we're out there, we're doing many different things in the community. Um, and like I said, it's many different levels. It's everybody from young people all the way up to older people, to veterans, um, and to ex offenders and things of that nature. But, what does it do? It, it tells a story about your company and that it's more than just, you know, opening up a beautiful place. It's about really creating impact. And there's, there's, there's impact in writing a check. In other words, somebody can call us for a donation or for an in-kind donation and say, Hey, can you donate, uh, you know, a 10 top table for this particular fundraiser? And a lot of restaurants get asked, uh, to do these things, or can I uh, get a donation for the local baseball team or whatever it is? But I will tell you that when you have 1,800 employees, the question is, how do you get these 1,800 people engaged in in in, in community give back and 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 not only that, but mentoring people in the community to be part of our organization? And you can't do that by donating a dinner or writing a check. <laughs> you do that by getting people out there. Uh, we do a spring cleanup in Baltimore where we take four or 500 employees and we just pick up trash all day long in our, in our various different communities. Um, we've painted shelters, we've done uh, soup kitchens. We've, so I would recommend out there when you talk about uh, getting involved in the community, it's more than just a dinner. It's more than just a check. It's more than just uh, one or two mentorship programs. It's it's getting your employee base, which we have numbers. And that's what I try to tell people in the community. Yeah. Like when a councilman calls me and you're like, hey, we need help doing this or that. Okay, well, we can get 250 people there because we that's that's real community give back. When you can engage your your our Atlas family or your restaurant group's family to come out and really participate. That's, that's the most meaningful stuff. 
Um, and so that's what we, 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 we continue to try and do. And, and we feel like that has the most impact. Um, and it's been great. Do, do you feel that your, um, your staff, um, get a, a greater sense of purpose by Absolutely. being involved in those and, and feel like, Absolutely. Hey, I'm not just a restaurant person. I'm really, I have, um, my job has societal impact. Absolutely. Um, greater sense of purpose, uh, a tie to the community, uh, a care for the place where they live and they work, um, you know, and they play. Um, it's just, that's what really ties us into the local community is the staff getting engaged. Mm -hmm. Strategic planning. Um, <laughs> how does that work in a, I mean, well, let me put it this way. What can you tell our listeners about strategic planning that might be scaled down to their level? Well, I mean, I would tell you that it depends on the operation. It depends on the operator. It depends on uh, what they're involved with. If, if, you know, it depends on what their growth strategy is. Yeah. You know? yeah. it, it's, it's a, that's a, that's a open-ended question. Um, you know, it really depends on the operation and, and, and where they want to go and, and what their vision of their company is. Do you have a mission and purpose statement that kind of sets the foundation for that or is we that do. sort of a moving target? We do. No, I think, uh, I think a mission statement is important. I think a foundation of, uh, you know, what your company is about is, is incredible. We have, you know, a core values, mm -hmm. uh, principles and attributes and core values that we have. And, um, and, you know, our employees are carrying those around with them, whether it's in their, uh, their server books or the managers have them in their, uh, pockets. And so, um, you know, I think a core values to, defines a, a restaurant group. It defines a company. I think any company, whether it's a restaurant company or not, should have core values and a mission statement. And, um, and the principles I talked about before really is what we founded our organization on. Um, but I think no matter how small or how big you are, I think it starts with that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, going back to that earlier point with uh, strategic planning, uh, I, I, I hear exactly what you said, that it varies so much depending upon the particular company and particular goals. But I would like to just underline a couple of the things that you you said that you all do so well, I think would be principles that are on the scale for some of our listeners. And that is, you, you, you decide the end game. You seem to have what you're expecting from a concept or from a particular investment. And then you can work backwards from that. So if your listeners feel like I'm just beginning to do what he's doing, then the best thing to do is take some of those principles that have been talked about today and say, okay, if this is where I am now, but this is where I want to be, multiple concepts or yeah. a particular type of concept. Okay, and then, then we can go back from there and fill in the short-term strategic plan of needs and you've got something then, a game plan to follow. No, I agree. I'm afraid we're going to have to start wrapping up now, but this has been a very quick little 50 minute program because um, we could talk for more and more. Maybe if it's okay with you, because I know you're busy, maybe uh, we could invite you back to talk a little bit more about some of the things that you've done and developed along the way that we know would help our listeners because we'd love to spend more time on those principles. No problem. <laughs> well, everyone, listen, you've been listening uh, to one of the best, a phenomenal restaurant group doing phenomenally well and doing it in a way that creates really good things uh, for everybody, uh, workers, management and the community. So, uh, Alex Smith, thanks again. It's the Atlas Restaurant Group. I personally have not been through your restaurants in Baltimore or the Maryland area, but uh, of course, I've eaten at Marmo and uh, 
who's uh, in Houston, you know, where I've lived for years and years. So congrats. Love your concepts. Please keep it going. Thanks so much. Thank you, Alex. For everybody out there, please uh, follow us and uh, hopefully we'll see you again real soon on another Corner Booth. Thank you for joining us on the Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.